you're trying to change things, you have to figure out where your power comes from. From ideas, organizing, earning media attention, confrontation with authority, all the creative things you have to do when the other side has the big bucks. But even the underdog needs some money too. When I ran for mayor in 2009, I was dramatically outspent. In the primary, I spent about $70,000, while my opponents spent several hundred thousand dollars apiece. They were up on TV. I had a couple of targeted mailings. But here's the deal. There's no way I would have won if I didn't raise at least that 70000 It was barely enough, but it was just enough. And just like political campaigns, social change movements need money, too. Money can really torque things, both for good and for bad. And it's not just who the money goes to. It's also how it gets there. Whether liberal or conservative, the donors have agendas, too. And that's why I invited Zeke Spear in today. As director of the Social Justice Fund, he helped change how they handed out the money. He brought the grassroots into the decision-making. His thinking was informed by his own activism and, well, more than a little civil disobedience. And we're going to talk about that. And other philanthropies around the country are now looking to him for advice. And, and here's why. It really worked. In the midst of the Great Recession, while other gra- outfits were cutting back, his organization, the Social Justice Fund, was expanding. Zeke, give me some stats. Help me sure. out Sure. I'm glad to, yeah. And, uh, you know, these stats, of course, only tell part of the story because the numbers only capture the external where so much of the momentum that we felt was in the leaders and the energy that people brought to the work. We'll talk but, about that, too. Yeah. But so, um, you know, over just a few years, we grew from about 300 donors to over 2,000 donors. We were able to expand our income from under 500000 to $2 million a year. And... Um, beyond that, we are able to dramatically increase the number of people we reach through our leadership development and engagement work. So tell me, what is the Social Justice Fund? We'll start there. Well, the Social Justice Fund actually has a long history of bringing the grassroots into philanthropy. Uh, founded in 1978, we've had decades of democratizing philanthropy by trying to include those voices that aren't normally included in decision making and also making sure that the funding is going to those at the front lines of social change. Those organizations that are led by the people actually impacted by the issues that they're working on, um, coming up with solutions based in the community and driven by a visionary sense of justice and long-term change, not just short-term solutions. So, you know, full disclosure here, uh, Zeke invited me on the be on the board of the Social Justice Fund, and I, and I joined it in large part because I love the idea of the grassroots being engaged with the giving. I'd, I'd been around philanthropy enough to see, as I said earlier, that donors have agendas and how that changes things, so I was really intrigued by that. But it, it wasn't just that you increased the amount of the number of donations and the number of donors and, and who you gave it to. You also really dramatically changed within the Social Justice Fund how money was, was handed out. And raised, in fact. Right. And, and so tell me I, about yes. that. And that raise part is a crucial piece, too, because, as you say, donors have agendas. And the way you raise the money, no matter how independent you think you are, you're beholden to those strategies that you use to raise the money. And so the change that we made is we really tried to take advantage of the power of individuals as leaders and as fundraisers. You know, lots of organizations will ask for volunteer fundraisers to you know, do a pledge sheet, you know, get their friends to chip in on something. But we really established a framework where we brought together smaller groups of people from all backgrounds. This is not just people with wealth or friends who have money. This is people from all backgrounds um, and all 
current experiences who are interested in thinking about how they can help resource social justice movements. And what we do is we train them and bring them through a process to understand their own role in not just raising money, but in using the experience of asking as a strategy of deepening conversations and actually inspiring others to get involved in deeper ways and movements as well. So we call this donor organizing. So it's a form of grassroots organizing using the fundraising process almost as a secondary outcome, uh, with the primary outcome being these deep and transformative conversations. And you had a name for these, the giving Yeah, project. they're called giving projects. So you know, if you haven't already joined one or you haven't already been asked for money by somebody in one, then you're probably not too close to the Seattle social justice scene. But um, if you'd like to be closer, it's a great way of getting connected. And you know, part of the reason I'm doing this is because I do... It, I am so struck by the success of this. I also want other people to look at it too. And I don't want this to just to be an infomercial for the social justice fund, but I, I but here I go. But it's not <laughs> just it's not just the amount of money raised or even that it's donor organizing. It's it's an intensive process that you ask people to go through in the giving project. Right. It's a it's a process of personal growth and learning. We ask people to examine their own identities. So uh, give, give yeah. me an idea of what a program looks like, that right, so, giving project. So you know, think of a group of about 20 folks uh, starting, spending a full day together, mostly focused on community building and personal storytelling. How do we actually start by connecting based on what inspires us to be involved in social justice work and really getting to hear other people's stories? It's always a good use of time. That's what this podcast, I think, is all about. Right. It's I, I believe in the power of narrative. Absolutely. Individual stories right. leading to a communal story. Right. From there, we know that we have to place those individual stories within a political, sociopolitical context. And if we don't understand these issues of race and racism, um, class, the difference of access we have to resources, especially we're in the business of giving away money, then we can't be fully grounded in the work that we're trying to do together. So we spend actually a full weekend really digging into those issues, looking at our personal experience of, of, of race and class, and also doing a little bit of analysis of understanding the way that these uh, inequalities play out on a social level. Yeah. There was a moment there when you and others in the Social Justice Fund were sitting around the room and said, we're going to change how we do things. And well, and yeah, well, and, and what, what I want to say is, is what's what's fascinating about the change that we made at, at the organization is that it was a accumulation of a lot of people's efforts to bring depth to the work that we did. So we didn't come up with, oh, we want to look deeply at these social issues or identities. That was work that leaders who'd come before had already brought to the table. You know, we weren't the first ones to think about bring, trying to bring volunteer fundraisers into the work. Folks right. had done that before. So what we really tried to do in the, the, the contribution that folk, that I and others uh, over the last few years made to the work was trying to create this into a cohesive whole that would really allow people to show up fully as individuals and have a deep and transformative experience um, while uh, sharing that experience with, with others. It also meant, I presume, relinquishing a, a fair bit of authority as to where the money went. Like you were going to give the decision-making authority to the group of individuals that gathered together to, to learn, to raise money, and then donate. Yeah, and it's interesting to think about this idea of, of decision-making power. Um, the organization does have a history of bringing committees together to make these decisions using a democratic approach. We believe the more perspectives that we have around the table, the better. And But bringing in folks that are new who might not have any experience in thinking about philanthropy, that was definitely a shift, and we had to come to terms with what would it take to train people and to give them the tools that they need to actually make the kinds of decisions that would lead to effective grants even without that depth of experience. And so as the process unfolds, um, you know, we uh, 
people get to meet directly with organizations and amazing leaders, learning about their challenges, what's working for them. People get to sort of have this received analysis of, you can see on our website, sort of the criteria that we use to evaluate and determine who to fund. And, and those criteria have been honed over decades right. of brilliant political thinkers who have thought really hard about what does it really mean to create long-term change? It's one thing to say, oh, we don't want a Band-Aid solution. We want to actually transform something. But what does that really mean? What does that look like on the ground? What is an annual work plan of actual activities? How does, it, how does a set of annual activities that will be effective at creating that long-term change look different from an organization who's just saying that they're doing that? So, so these, are, these are tools that we're able to give. So it's not just people choosing based on sort of popularity contests. We actually have some pretty powerful tools that people are able to use to make these decisions. So for Social Justice Fund, it was an evolution then, is what you're telling me, to get to this point of really relinquishing the authority and really involving grassroots in it. But, I mean, I don't want to name names or anything, but that's not how many social change philanthropies operate. I mean, certainly it's not traditional philanthropy. And yes, even those, those foundations who, who profess to be uh, in the even progressive or social justice world oftentimes don't use those. So just to, yes. you know, my understanding of how it yeah. works is, you know, there's a program officer. There's right. a grant cycle announced. There's a program officer. There's an analysis done. There's recommendations made to a board, which oftentimes may have fundraising opportunities and then it's handed out. Am I mischaracterizing I mean that is it? certainly one of the one of the pathways. You know, a lot of private philanthropy is even more restrictive than that. It's not so much a board but it, it's a board of trustees and you know these trustees are oftentimes the family members who either directly uh, 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 earned huge amounts of financial resources or inherited them and these trusteeships are oftentimes passed down to uh, generate generationally. And so if you look at just the top level issue of diversity in philanthropy, well We've done an okay job of actually having some diversity in program officers. For example, right. those people who are on the ground meeting with organizations. But trustees are over 90% white, um, more men than women. Uh, you know, the, the folks who actually have the power at the end of the day are grossly mis uh, grossly. A different representation than the, the people the that they're actually trying to help. The trustees represent wealth accumulation. They represent, represent wealth accumulation. Philanthropy is built on wealth accumulation. That's, you know, one significant difference. I think another difference, you know, you see this reliance on data, for example, or right. outcomes. You see a lot of that. So lots of times people want to see, I'm going to give my money and I'll be able to say this many people had this change in their personal outcomes or something like that. And, and this is a crucial point because because it's such a tempting path to go down to think if we just measure the right thing, if we can just figure out what that key point is to shift that will uh, you know, have all these other outcomes. You know, people think about education uh, right. in this early, early child. If we, exactly. if we just get them, if we can just get them for that one year extra pre-K, then the dominoes will fall and we'll have a just and equitable world. And there's some data and science behind this that shows that certain interventions do have a disproportionate impact. The problem is when you start looking at data in this way, it narrows your focus of what kind of change it's possible to achieve. I have the belief that to actually substantially shift what are the very deep inequalities and injustices in our society, we can't do that from an external piecemeal approach. We actually have to shift power. And what these data points never really do is measure shifts in power. I mean, political power, social power, you know, power in the media, right? We think about power. Uh, 
certainly there's a path towards power of, for example, an individual getting a better education. But unless we create an infrastructure for communities who are on the downside of those power dynamics to exercise power collectively, we won't be moving towards that long-term change. And the data when it comes to tracking individuals just doesn't get there. Power building politics is a messy, non-linear system. It's it's not it's a very messy system. It's, it's a very messy system. And 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 even when you even apart from thinking about something like movement building, right? right we think what is what does it take for a movement to emerge? Movements have been what have shifted power most throughout our history. And it, when you think about what it takes to create or start a movement, there's no set of data that can get there. Like I say, even those foundations that believe in movement building, you know, they were blindsided by things like Occupy and Black Lives Matter. So you know, the, 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 the tools of, of linear thinking and if A then B then C then D sort of logic model approaches is just not, a, it's a tool that is useful for certain outcomes, but it's not a tool that's well suited for transformative and deep social change. I want to talk just a minute or two about how you came to this set of beliefs, which you just expressed so eloquently. And when we were talking yesterday, you told me your first real involvement in social in the social justice movement was was in high school. Right. I think, and again, it, it didn't feel like I was doing activism or social justice work at the time. I had been involved in theater and through sort of exploring theater as an art form, working with other students who we really believed in it and we really wanted to do something meaningful. We uh, actually worked to sort of write and produce and, and put on uh, a play about the immigrant experience of being high school students. And so we interviewed uh, high school students, not just at our high school, but others around the city uh, who were immigrants and collected their stories and turned them into small scenes and vignettes and monologues and performed it a few times. And of course, the experience of gathering those stories was deeply impactful, but also... How was it deeply impactful? You know, as someone who grew up white and middle class, these weren't experiences that I was aware of. You know, this idea that folks that could be sitting across the classroom from me, either they or their families were fleeing from deep uh, poverty, political persecution, violence, um, wasn't something that had crossed my mind. So what did that? What did you do then? When you, as a result of hearing that? Well, I mean, we said, okay, how do we tell the story? And so we put on this play, and and both saw that we were kind of getting through to people who, who like me had not heard these stories before, but also to be approached by some of the people that we'd interviewed, and even some other students uh, who are immigrants and adults who are immigrants to say, oh wow, it's so incredible to see my story represented. It kind of blew my mind and made me feel that thinking about changing the dynamics of whose stories are visible is a crucial part of social change work. And it actually in some ways put me off theater because so little of theater had that kind of impact, right? So much of it was about fun and entertainment and it kind of put me off it and got me thinking more in the political realm. So what was your next step then in activism? Well, my next step was, and it's interesting because protest is theater, right? Um, yes. Political protest is a form of theater. And, and so this was in 1999 that I went off to the East Coast to school and back home I saw the WTO protest happening here in Seattle and I was just transfixed by it. I was studying the civil rights movement at the time and uh, really deep into it, right? Reading these biographies and contemporary accounts. And then meanwhile, I saw playing out live on the internet videos and stories of something happening today. And I 
was totally transfixed by it and ended up actually dropping out of school um, at the end of that year to get involved in some of the anti-globalization protests that happened after. And how, how, did, how did you get involved? What did you do? I just showed up. That's the thing is I just showed up and, and you know, it was, it was all through reading about stuff on the internet and finding addresses, you know, the sort of gathering places at a church to show up and say, hey, I want to be a part of this. And very quickly got involved in organizing a number of actions and um, most strikingly spent a lot of time in Philadelphia leading up to the Republican convention in 2000. George, George W. Bush was nominated as president and worked with some folks to do some street theater specifically highlighting youth issues, right? So we, we there's so much to say about how prescient it, I feel now having <laughs> protested that administration. There's plenty of things to complain right. about, but, but certainly highlighting that, you know, a lot of his policies hurt young people. And so we went out to the street to, to sort of show this through, show this creatively and we're um, swept up. Uh, you know, over 50 people were arrested just at that intersection that I was at, including myself. What and were you doing at the time? I was sitting down in the street, you know, making some noise. Um, so you're just sitting there in the street, the police show up and you get arrested. Right. Swept away, put in a bus and, and, and entered into what feels from, certainly from my young you know, I was how old were you? I was 19 years old at the time. Certainly, from in my young mind, it ended up being this Kafka-esque experience of ended up being in jail for nine days with with lots of things along the way. You know, first being on the bus in 100 degree heat with no water and no bathrooms for something like six or seven hours, right? People passing out, being dragged by their handcuffs, beaten, kicked, right? and then we finally get into these small jail cells they were the sort of county jail style bars you know six by eight foot cell and we had six to eight people in each one um and no conversations with lawyers no phone calls and i ended up staying in that cell with those six other people for something like 72 hours um and what did you do what did you do when well you were we, in the cell? we 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 you know activists love meetings <laughs> and, and, you know, normally there's this time pressure of trying to keep them short. Well, we didn't have to keep our meetings short. We had 24 hours a day. So we had conversations about what to do, how we push back, how we defend ourselves. It was actually fun because I was on the cell at the end. And if we yelled loud enough, we could hear the women's block of the prison. So we would pass messages back and forth by screaming them through the walls and, and have meetings within ourselves and passing our agreements down the, down the way. So we, we had long and deep conversations both about the issues and about what was going on in jail. Um, within that, we sort of really came to understand that it was going to look a little different at this protest than it had in past yeah, ones. Yeah, this, this is quite an extreme reaction to put protesters in jail for this long right I mean, normally often, normally there would be some kind of kind of we're going to give you a little summons maybe pay a fine and kind of court date and then let everyone go so what was going on well it turns out in retrospect that there's actually a great new book uh, released on this called crashing the party um, talking about how this philadelphia protest was a turning point in the criminalization of dissent there had been a coordinated effort on the part of the philadelphia police you know talking to people in other cities and the fbi about how they kind of put a stop to this uh, uh, upswelling of, of so public So Philadelphia public was protests. going to be trying out new tactics. They new tactics. Make... They're going to try to throw the book at us, shut us down, um, and, and, and use the full force of the law. And so, for example, I was charged with, I believe, 
eight misdemeanors <laughs> for being there in the street. But even worse, there was a number of individuals singled out uh, with felony charges. The people who got felony charges were the perceived leaders of the protest and people who had been beaten by the police. They charged them with assault on a police officer sort of preemptively as a way of avoiding the culpability of So of, you're 19 years old, you're in jail for yeah. days. That has to have an impact. Well, it did. And I remember one of the most meaningful moments in there was when I was uh, late at night speaking to a young guy in the cell next to me that I'd remembered meeting, the gentlest guy you could ever imagine. You know, I can't imagine he's ever hit anybody in his life. And he reached his arm out through the bars and showed me the bracelet that they had put on him, which said felony assault as his charge. And he was crying. And I remember holding his hand quite dramatically through the bars and you know, telling him I was going to be there with, for him. You know, I wasn't going to let them single him out and, and, uh, and making this commitment of, you know, I thought about this idea of solidarity before and what it meant to kind of stick with something. But in that moment, I really felt it and made this commitment that I was going to stick it out. And, you know, I ended up staying in Philly the next year, actually working on the legal defense um, for those who are arrested. Yesterday, when we were talking, you also told me about an experience when you were sent out to the to exercise. Right. So so after after we were in these very, very packed cells, they put us on the bus and sent us out to the prison. The, the you know, instead of the, the bars on, on the cell with a bunch of people, the it was the solid metal doors with a small uh, glass window with, you know, cross hatching of metal within that. And I was largely by myself. Uh, I had sometimes had a, a cellmate with me, but I had spent um, 23 to 24 hours a day alone. And the other part was we had all decided to go on hunger strike. So I hadn't eaten at this point in five, six days and was sleeping a lot and going through all kinds of interesting personal growth and, and self-awareness uh, in this, this quite extreme situation. And I do remember at one point that they came to my door and they said, it was the only time it happened in the days I was there. It's time to exercise. And I was like, okay, I stumbled out of the room, went off to this basketball court um, and it's, it's, you know, in these, in these prisons, you know, this is their outdoors. What it is is it's a two-story, three-story high concrete wall with chain link fence above it. So there's some sky there that you can see, but it really could hardly be called outdoors. And on the court was a prison guard and an inmate, and um, they're shooting hoops, and they kind of invited me over. We started playing horse. And I remember my first shot literally made it halfway to the basket and so I was so weak from not having eaten and they 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 cracked up at that and it really broke the ice and you know here I am I'm feeling so self-righteous at this point you know as a again middle-class white kid right like, how dare they how and could they do this to me I, this is unjust I haven't spoken to a lawyer right you know how, how could this happen you know I, I felt like I'd been in there forever and I remember talking to the inmate and he told me his story he'd been in jail over a year pre-trial um, he was waiting for a trial. He couldn't afford bail. He had a public defender he hadn't spoken to in, in months who had missed his last court date that got delayed. So he's in this kind of purgatory at this whole other level. And of course, I knew about racial disproportionality and I knew about, um, you know, the criminal justice system and, and, and the way that money uh, eases your way through that system. But, but to have that personal experience of seeing this guy and hearing his story when I was feeling su such strong emotions myself made me extend this idea of, wow, okay, I need to include him and everyone else in this jail in this idea of solidarity if I'm going to think about solidarity. And I still think about him a lot when I think about the social justice work that I do and the things that I care about, that if he's, you know, I have no idea his name or if he got out or what his story was, but, you know, him and people like him, if he's not free, then, um, then I'm not finished.
you ended up working on civil justice, uh, criminal justice issues. I mean, largely that. through by, by this legal defense work of the protesters. You know, after we all got out over about, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten days, I think I was in nine days. You know, some folks were in as much as two weeks. They threw the book at us. They moved forward with full prosecutions. And we had to coordinate both a legal defense strategy as well as a media strategy over the ensuing year. Uh, to make sure that people weren't convicted. And the good news is we won. Actually, no one was convicted of a felony throughout that whole process. And we were able to actually hold together. And, 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 and we used the process as a way of raising these larger questions about criminal justice. We didn't make it just about us as protesters. We extended that and worked with other local organizations who were working on broader criminal justice reform and made sure that at every press conference, every statement, we tied what was happening to this criminalization of protesters to the broader system as well. So you stayed in this kind of arena of protest and, and civil disobedience for a little while after that. Right. At this point, I was in the culture, right? So was traveling around. It was still this era, uh, you know, this is pre-9-11. Right. I feel like 9-11 did change things. Philadelphia was a turning point, and 9-11 was another one that changed the way that people saw these mass protests. You know, yeah, I, I attended many others, including getting arrested at least one other time. Um, what did you get arrested for that time? Well, so this is this is uh, this is the funny. I, I I'm 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 only slightly embarrassed about it. <laughs> uh, but what was what was fascinating. So this is a in in Cincinnati. It was a protest of the transatlantic business dialogue, which is a group of kind of government leaders, CEOs from Europe and the United States who have these secret meetings and make recommendations, which end up getting adopted at an extremely high rate. So unaccountable corporate and political power. Right. So. Um, we were at a protest there, and and I'd been doing this legal this legal work all year, and I saw something happening. There was a permitted legal protest with you know set up at a public park, and the police had set up a cordon around it, and were searching everybody's bags and persons um, on the way in. And I thought they can't do that. That's that's unreasonable search. You can't just search everybody. Um, they weren't looking for weapons or dangerous right. items. They were trying to find evidence of spray paint or other items, just kind of searching for something they could arrest people for. So I went over there and I made an announcement. I said, hey, I'm going to call. I had some lawyers I could call. I said, I'm going to call some lawyers. They're going to come down here and negotiate with the police. You don't have to submit to the search if you don't want to. And so a bunch of people started milling around and waiting outside, uh, outside of the park, you know, walking in a picket line, walking in a circle, quite peacefully surrounded by police on all sides, horse police in the street lines of police on all sides and people started chanting and I still to this day don't know if I was the one who started the chant or if someone else did and I picked it up but I did say two four six eight fuck the police states and as soon as that uh, word came out of my mouth uh, a sergeant grabbed me uh, arrested me and and locked me up and uh, it maybe partly because I I chanted that slogan, and partly because maybe he perceived me as a leader of having made this announcement right. earlier. Right. And uh, right. I had to experience a whole other side of the court system. My charges were dropped, uh, and they took me to trial. The judge dismissed the charges, and I actually got to participate in a lawsuit against uh, against the department and the officer for for the illegal arrest. And you were telling me, though, it didn't actually – it ended up kind of in a muddy conclusion. It ended up in a muddy legal conclusion. If, if people are curious, the concept is qualified immunity. Basically, the judge found that my rights were, in fact, violated, but that the cop didn't know any better is basically the, the easy way of, of saying it, which, which you know, most of the lawyers saw as a cop-out. But I do feel good that my case has been cited in other, right. in other cases in the, in the circuit there um, as, as a reason that you can't arrest someone actually just for – political speech, even if that speech 
um, has profanity in it. So how did you make the switch from this type of, you know, in-your-face protesting to philanthropy? How did that transition occur? Well, the the next step I did, um, you know, I, I ended up going back to school, finishing my degree back here in Washington. And and when I finished, I knew I wanted to stay active and and, and, um, and kind of re-engage a bit. So I ended up spending some time down in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Mm. I had a friend who'd been down and, and decided that I would go too because I was so struck by the the both the sort of physical devastation, but also the political framework that had emerged around it. And so went down and started volunteering with an organization called Common Ground Relief um, and did some direct work, kind of cleaning out houses, meeting local residents, but also pretty pretty soon started working with others to help uh, do trainings for other protesters that were coming down about race, racism, the context of New Orleans. There's an organization based in New Orleans called the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond that's been quite active here in Seattle as well around issues of racial justice and racial justice training. And so I got to meet those folks and kind of work with them to help coordinate some of these, some of these trainings and, and uh, was so struck one by the arrogance of the largely sort of white college student volunteers that were coming to the town thinking that, Oh gosh, we have the solutions to your problems. Oh, you should just plant a community garden. You know, these sort of, the sort of idea, this sort of imperialism of, of academic elitism, right? That that people thought, oh, we're going to come and save this community. But meanwhile, I had I was lucky enough to actually meet folks from this community who had been brilliant uh, surviving racism, surviving slavery, surviving Hurricane Betsy in the '60s, right? Uh, finding ways of building community resilience and power in the face of an incredibly unjust system. And the knowledge and wisdom of that community was so striking. Uh, that that the idea that answers would come from outside just seemed ludicrous to me. So that really cemented, you know, both again understandings of power and race and and decision making, and it also highlighted for me that I wanted to be involved in this work in some way in social justice work, but that my the right role for me was not to be on the front lines. I wasn't the one who's supposed to come up with the solutions. That my role is to try to move power and resources to those who come from these communities and have the brilliance and leadership already and just need a little more power in order to exercise that. And so as I was looking for a place to land, I uh, found Social Justice Fund and, and saw this organization with this mission that was truly about moving resources and giving power to these organizations on the ground. And I thought this is a great place for me to be. And they hired you. Well, they hired me. I, I applied for a job as an office administrator. I, I didn't care much what I did. I just wanted to work for an organization that I that I believed in. One thing led to another, and you ended up being their director. I did, and and that's not due to any <laughs> deep brilliance in myself. You know, progressive philanthropy, the kind of philanthropy that we did at Social Justice Fund, and also others have been doing all around the country. That's based on fundraising. Really took a big hit in the recession. Um, in addition to taking a big hit in the recession organizations like ours lost a bunch of support from some of the bigger organizations as they decided more and more that they had the right answers themselves and right. they weren't interested in supporting the sort of more democratic process of deciding um, either. So um, these organizations were struggling all over the country and, and we were struggling as well. And so, you know, as the organization went through these challenges, I had opportunities to sort of step up and contribute in different ways and, you know, got offered the opportunity to be a leader of the organization largely because we almost had to shut our doors because we were in a financial crisis. And, um, you know, thanks to the amazing leadership of so many of the people that I worked with, we were able to turn the corner, but it was a close call. 
it was a close call. Well, it's so fascinating. I, I, I interview a lot of people on this show, and, you know, there are different roles to play, and obviously there's the drama of the people in direct confrontation, you know, on the front lines of activism, but I've also found in interviewing people that lots of people never go there. They, they fill some other role. Other people transition into that role over time. And I, I'm really struck by the insight that you've offered about, you know, who gets to make the decisions about tactics and strategy and how do you, how do you fight for change, mm-hmm. which, you know, you intentionally wanted to move into kind of a backseat role on that. Right. And people oftentimes were, were, you know, didn't believe me when people would come to me to try to get funding from the organization. And I would say, oh, I think your project's great, but it's not my decision. And, and uh, you know, it was, it was sometimes hard for people to believe. And even, and even within the world of progressive philanthropy, meeting with other people at other organizations that are less democratic than the one than Social Justice Fund is, um, I would say I don't really care where our money goes. That's not what I'm focused on as long as it goes to communities most affected by injustice as long as it goes to organizations trying to make long-term systemic shifts i don't know which one is going to work best i might have ideas i certainly have ideas i certainly have organizations which i love and i believe in but i also know that uh, in this complex world it's most more likely that the real change is going to come from a place that none of us could have predicted well the other thing is if you're following politics today it seems like if you want a cause to succeed you need a millionaire excuse me a billionaire yeah. you need a, <laughs> a billionaire. billionaire is nice <laughs> a billionaire. Yeah. no it's yeah. it's really fascinating right. to see this both the left and the right have kind of gone to this model of who's the really really wealthy person who can fund this effort right yeah. it, i don't know it disturbs me because then it's a losing game tell me why it's a losing game so you know the skills that it takes to accumulate a billion dollars in the system that we have today, you know, it takes, uh, well, certainly a fair amount of luck, <laughs> but you know, the sort of ruthlessness, drive, single-minded vision to push forward something like that is not are not the same skills that it takes to create transformation in society. But when people have accumulated those levels of resources, they've been told through that accumulation and through the sort of adulation they receive from society at large for sort of fulfilling the promise of capitalism that they're the smartest person in the room they are um our modern day heroes to some extent and it's no surprise that they would also think that they would have the best solutions to trying to solve the world's problems as well and if it's true that social change is a non-linear dynamic system like a natural system these overweighted strategies of 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 sort of top-down or predetermined outcomes are going to actually disrupt it and so tell me what do you mean by actually disrupt it so there's lots of examples i could give about how let's pick one right 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 so um so one of the one of the easy ones is the is the uh, flavor of the month style of giving where people for a period of three or five years will get really into something like um we're going to talk about early childhood education or we're going to talk about asset building in low-income communities right. or we're going to even say in the social justice thing, it's all about immigration, right? So so certainly I'm not saying that education, asset building, immigration aren't important issues, but when these trends happen and people sort of follow the smart thinking, there's a bunch of money dumped into organizations that may or may not be prepared to scale up to this level. 
uh, all of a sudden the other kinds of work that is intersecting and supportive of that, a great example of something that's been consistently underfunded is black-led organizing. Right. Part of the emergence of, 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 this, of this really powerful movement has been in response to the continual marginalization of black-led organizations. Understanding that to create systemic change, we need a system where immigrant organizations, black-led organizations are actually working together and not, be, and not, and not put against each other. I think, you know, we saw the sort of failure of comprehensive immigration reform when there was millions and millions and millions of dollars put into this, where the greatest success of Obama's executive order, which of course is still um, fraught with <laughs> challenges, but, but um, that success didn't come from a centrally funded uh, project. That success, I believe, came from um, the Not One More campaign of largely grassroots movement that was not well-funded, making unreasonable demands. We're saying, we don't want any more deportations. Well, Done, think, right? And, yeah. and, 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 and it, was, it was that work that really put the pressure on and the young dreamers that came up and led to that executive order, right? So it's this thing where the money ends up distracting from where some of the real momentum is. And then when the money disappears and moves on to the next thing, oftentimes those movements and organizations end up years behind where they start. Well, you also see a thing where the kind of there are these organizations at, at the middle level of this, right? They're the ones who are staffed and funded by donors who do a lot of the work. And they're waiting for the signal for the donor to start the work because mm-hmm. they feel they need the work. I mean, I, I've seen that in the environmental arena. Right, right. And, right? and when, and like when the donors yeah. start driving the agenda of the organizations right. instead of the organizations driving the agenda of the movement. Yeah, what's happening, especially when those groups that get a lot of foundation funding or individual funding from big donors and different levels, is they almost, the organizations, instead of acting as sort of visionary, on the ground, dynamic agents that can respond and evolve and change in ways that are needed to create the world we want to see, they end up being subcontractors for foundations. They end up implementing projects that fit someone else's strategy uh, that came from the boardroom of the foundation. And, but all these strategies aren't coordinated with each other. So it's piecemeal. People are trying to piece together a budget by saying, we're going to do a little bit of this, a little bit of that. You know, this sort of fits our mission. It's a little bit of a drift, but we're going to maybe even lie or talk out of the corner of our mouth to tell the foundation this is really our goal, but we're going to try to yeah. hone it in. You end up with these sort of Frankenstein organizations you know, that don't have a core to them. What's fascinating is one thing you said in there is I do think the philanthropies do try to work up an overarching strategy. In fact, yes. they often point to the Republicans. Right. Or the right wing has come has come forward with a way to fund the think tanks and the organizations and the media that collectively generates this impact. The capacity to do that level of top-down planning, we, we trick ourselves a little bit into thinking that we can actually do that. If we just move all the chess pieces around the board right, we'll put the other side into checkmate, right. and we'll win. And in fact, the pieces seem to have minds of their own. Well, and they should have minds of their own. That's the <laughs> thing, is, is we, don't, we aren't looking for a top-down society. You know, progressives, you know, people who believe in justice, don't want to have a set of top-down organizations and top-down policies. We want to strengthen the power of the pawns on the board. And so the very idea of the sort of chess master in control is anathema to the goal that we're trying to reach. It's also, I just think, sometimes ineffective. I just think it's beyond the capacity of the human brain to actually be right. able Espe- to figure especially out all you, of these things. Especially when you see an organization that's only giving away a few hundred thousand or a few million dollars a year thinking that um, their strategy is going to lead to an end to racism, right? This is this kind of arrogance of, of the role that they play, of, of who's actually in charge, right? These 
that amount of money can be incredibly impactful, can make a huge difference. But to boost what's there, why create something new? There's brilliance already that we can tap into through these organizational infrastructure of communities. Well, we've, we've not been naming names, but this city has some billionaires as well. And you look at something like um, the Gates Foundation and their work around uh, education or their work around international relief or even their work now around climate, which is something that I pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And I, I, the more that I've been digging into this, you know, the more I begin to realize that that level of money itself begins to interfere with solutions. It does, and and um, you know, people aren't immune to the attraction of of, of growth and 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 chasing resources on, on any part of the political spectrum. And when you start throwing huge amounts of money on the table, then it is tempting for organizations to bend <laughs> their strategies to to get on board. Um, but the truth is, is that with an organization like Gates Foundation, there are other organizations, um, even one tenth the size, is that because of the scale, those organizations most close to the ground don't even have an opportunity to apply. It's not that these organizations are being dismissed for being ineffective or that they're being forced to adopt the Gates Foundation's priorities. They uh, aren't even considered, right? Not it's even not, on the radar it's not worth their time to give away anything less than you know, $100,000, $250,000 a year. And so this this very idea that, that the, the infrastructure um, uh, which I believe that if we don't have that that small scale infrastructure, all those medium sized organizations, well, how are they supposed to? Is everyone supposed to knock on everyone's door? You know, should everyone's every or, every organization who cares about transit or or healthcare, right? Is, is every organization separately supposed to engage every community through t- these sort of t- town halls? Oh, come to the meeting, and then you'll never hear from us again. No, we need organizational infrastructure within these communities, within these neighborhoods to self-organize, to be able to show up for any of the bigger organizations to actually achieve any of the things that they want to achieve. But that's like a classic public good problem where, you know, everyone knows that that would help anyone who's trying to engage communities to change the world, climate, whatever the issue is that you're working on, the more engaged and organized communities are, the easier it is for you to achieve your goals. But no one wants to pony up and pay for it because by definition, when you organize in that way, you aren't doing a single issue. You aren't doing a right. single strategy. It's messy. It's complicated. Sometimes there's leadership issues and coming and going and, and inefficiencies, um, but it's crucial, right? So who's going to step up and pay for that? So another one of my guests um, on the show likes to talk about uh, chaotic but smart versus orderly but dumb. Exactly. And this and yeah. this is the, the place yeah. we're at. So- what next? What is the you know if you if you could rewrite the philanthropy well, rule book, what would it look like? I, I don't I don't do think anyone's going to let me do that. But uh, maybe maybe once I have a billion dollars, I don't know if there's <laughs> any of those billionaires listening. Feel free to give me a call. Um, but no, I've actually stepped out of my role as executive director at Social Justice Fund. Um, there's a real fantastic leadership there, um, taking it places that I I could never take it, and I've been focusing my energy on helping other organizations around the country replicate this model. So really starting small and really thinking about what it looks like um, to do this kind of transformative, cross-class, cross-race, 
experience, leadership development experience with this donor organizing perspective, if we can make this happen in other places around the country, we can sort of dramatically expand the number of people who are thinking in this way about philanthropy and hopefully move some money along the way. So right now that's where my energies are focused and I think there's real potential there. I think there's real potential both for uh, the number of people that we can engage and, and the money we can, we can move, but also really for um, creating a different, uh, a different symbol of, of, of how this can look, a, d a different vision of philanthropy that is grounded in communities. And uh, I'm not gonna hold my breath that the billionaires will follow, but the good news is, is if we do this work well enough and if we find out how to resource this work ourselves, then we don't need them anymore. And actually we do have everything we need within our communities. Those of us who care about justice, if we can organize our resources, if we can put our money where our values are, and actually do that in relationship, not only with people like us who share values, but people from different backgrounds who share values, then we have everything that we need. I love organizing. Organizing is, um, one definition I've heard of organizing is uh, taking what you have to get what you want. So you, that, that was, yeah. you were just expressing it. So I get to start the show uh, by picking a song that I like, and I always let my guests pick the, the last song. And you picked um, I Fought the Law and the Law Won by The Clash. Right, tell, me, right. tell me why you picked that song. Well, you know, as I was thinking about all, all these stories, I was thinking back to my time at going around to these protests and, and listening to punk shows in, in basements. And I remember in kind of one of these basements, you know, dark and smoky and, and very, very loud, someone covering, covering the song right as we were fighting uh, back against the, the DA in Philadelphia. And, you know, uh, you know, the song says, you know, I fought the law and the law won. And, and you know, as much as we won uh, in that moment, um, the law did win, right? That when, when the, the apparatus of, 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 of government really tries to crack down in this way, it changes the way that people are able to fight back. But there's definitely a catharsis in being able to uh, acknowledge that, fight back, and be creative about how we move forward around it. I fought the law and the law won. 